If you want to follow along, this is Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 15. And you can follow along in your pew Bibles or if you brought your own. Listen for God's word in those of his prophet, Jeremiah. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we're safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made my dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. No one goes to Shiloh. So Debbie and I are still looking for a few of you to fill out the roster for our August pilgrimage to the land of the Bible. This is our trip to Israel and Palestine that's going to take place this coming August, August 26th to September 6th. There are brochures, look like that, they're on the slat wall with all of the brochures to the right of the welcome table out there. If you come with us, and I sure hope you do, I promise that you will have a rich and meaningful experience. Having stood in many of the places where the Bible stories actually take place, you will never experience Scripture the same again in your life. It is a full itinerary, and the itinerary is in this brochure. We are going to see a lot of the Holy Lands over 10 days, but there is one place where we will not be going, Shiloh, because nobody goes to Shiloh. Nobody, that is, except for a group of my Princeton Seminary classmates 
with whom I first traveled to Israel as a five-year seminary reunion special trip that our seminary put together back in 1997. And we went to Shiloh because the Old Testament professor, who was one of the leaders of this trip, insisted, insisted that we go to Shiloh. Shiloh, after all, was one of the most important temples of Israel in the time of the judges. It's actually where young Samuel, if you remember the story, he was serving the priest Eli and he heard the voice of God. The problem is that this Old Testament professor had to first convince our Israeli tour guide who had a lifetime of experience but had never himself been to Shiloh. Because it turns out that Shiloh is not on any of the well-trod tourist itineraries. In fact, it is in the middle of the occupied West Bank, and it is really hard to get to. In fact, our experienced Israeli bus driver, who had also never been to Shiloh, got lost a number of times on these tiny one-lane farm roads that you have to take to get to the site of ancient Shiloh. He, have to, he actually had to stop and ask for directions three times. And when we finally tumbled out of the bus, there wasn't a parking lot, there wasn't a visitor's center. What we discovered was basically a neglected, unmarked, barely noticeable scattering of rocks next to somebody's farm. Because, like I said, nobody goes to Shiloh. Which, it turns out, is exactly what God is saying to his own people through the prophet Jeremiah in this passage that Julie just read for us. So, sometimes I like to think about the various passages of Scripture in terms of an imaginary meter. And it's an imaginary meter that I call the squirm meter. And what the squirm meter does, it has a needle, and it registers just how much a particular passage makes me squirm. There are some that are really pleasant, don't make me squirm at all, and then there are others. How much a passage jars me out of my comfortable assumptions, how much it invades my self-satisfaction, how convicted I feel, well, for my money, this passage, Jeremiah's temple sermon, all but shatters that squirm meter because it registers so high. Now, if that wasn't your experience a moment ago when Julie just read it, I want you to picture what is happening in this scene. Imagine that you are in the temple in Jerusalem in the middle of Sabbath worship, the busiest day of the most sacred place in all of Jerusalem, in fact, in the whole country. And as you look around, people are engaged doing a whole range of genuinely devout spiritual things. Some over there are praying. Others are making sacrifices. Many are worshiping. They are singing worship choruses. They're reading scripture. They are pondering God's glory when suddenly... This lone figure bursts through the temple gates and bellows at the top of his lungs, Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship God. And then he proceeds at full volume to harangue them. 
you might think, he basically tells them, you might think that God is overjoyed that you're here today doing all this religious stuff. You might think that God is tickled at your devotion and your faithfulness. No, says Jeremiah. God is in fact sickened by this whole scene. He is insulted. He is disgusted because what you are doing is all a sham. Woo! Right? Well, if that doesn't make you squirm, let me bring this scene a little bit closer to home. Imagine if this morning... In this very sanctuary, this morning, maybe during our opening praise songs, maybe during the offering, maybe gulp during my message right now, some guy suddenly throws open those double doors right there, and at the top of his lung, he roars out, Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of North Creek who come through these doors to worship God. All this religious stuff that you're doing this morning... It's a sham. You see what I mean? The squirm factor. The squirm factor is high in this one, no? And actually, I think it's even worse than that. You might have been wondering that about that peculiar rhythmic poem that in the middle of the passage, Jeremiah kind of sarcastically quotes the audience as saying, my guess, can't prove this, my guess is that these are the lyrics to the praise song that at that moment was on the PowerPoint screen there in the temple. These are the words of the worship chorus that they were singing at that very moment. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And what Jeremiah is saying is that those words of self-confident, self-assured faith don't mean a thing because all of this is just a sham. So let's be clear, no one there in that temple that day thought that what they were doing was a sham. No, quite the opposite. They were all convinced that they were just doing what good, faithful Israelites should do. They were observing the correct religious practices, the devout observances, the respectable and the pious actions of any good follower of Israel's God. These, after all, were the churchgoers, right? Unlike their lazy peers who were still at home in bed, these are the folks that actually showed up on the Sabbath in the temple. And they are faithfully saying the prayers. And they are faithfully joining in the liturgy. They are making the sacrifice. They are singing the chorus. They are worshiping. So how in the world can such reverent effort be called a sham? Well, the best way that I can explain the point of Jeremiah's, yes, rather harsh temple sermon is to recall one of our worship series. This was back in the fall of 2017, and the series was called The Jesus Creed. And that title is a reference to a scene in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in which some Pharisees try and trap Jesus on what is Scripture's greatest commandment. And in response, Jesus summarizes all of Old Testament faith in just two simple phrases. There's a vertical component, love God, and there's a horizontal component, love your neighbor. 
What Jeremiah is claiming here, and this is centuries before Jesus, there in the temple, is that worship that ignores those two things is a sham. It's just going through the motions. It is meaningless. And that is what has been happening. God's people have been dutifully gathering for Sabbath worship, Saturday in and Saturday out, all the while pretty much ignoring both the vertical and the horizontal aspects of true, genuine faith in God. Vertically, well, they've split their commitment between God and uh, one of his local pagan rivals. They're worshiping the true God on the Sabbath, but they are sneaking into the local shrine of the Canaanite god Baal during the week just to offer a quick sacrifice, hedging their bets to ensure rain for the crops. They didn't have their whole heart in their vertical relationship with God. And then horizontally, far from loving, loving their neighbors, they've habitually been cheating at business. They have taken advantage of the powerless and the vulnerable of the community. They have ripped off orphans and widows. They have mistreated foreigners, undocumented aliens in their midst. All of which, Jeremiah roars, makes their worship a cheap facade, makes it a sham. How had it come to this? How did God's people end up such hypocrites? Well, there's an intriguing clue in a short phrase that Jeremiah suggests has been regularly on the people's lips and on their hearts. And it's the three words, we are safe. That's what Jeremiah says they've been saying, what they've been thinking. We are safe. Here in this stately temple, with our properly organized and conducted worship, with our reverent practices, our correct dogma, our pious religious observance, we are safe. Because we have been dutiful to God, well, surely God is pleased with us. We have a valid claim on God's favor. You could even say God is on our side. And the comfort and the security of such spiritual confidence has begun to work like a drug. It has numbed, increasingly numbed the people from actually encountering the living God himself. Certain, confident that they have checked all the ceremonial religious boxes, God himself begins to fade from their awareness. And their faith soon becomes just a routine. It becomes a habit. It becomes a sequence of activity. And soon any curiosity about who God really is and what God really wants, it begins to dry up and wither. And faith kind of goes on autopilot, replaced bit by bit, ever so subtly, by smugness. Well, I'm here on the Sabbath like God wants, they find themselves thinking. Does it really matter what I do Monday through Friday at work, at school, at home, or maybe I'm out after hours? 
none of us likes to squirm. Am I right? We want faith that is comfortable, that is reassuring, that is pleasant. But I am convinced that there are passages of Scripture that God made sure ended up in our Bibles precisely in order to make us squirm. Squirm in the most healthy and productive sort of way. There are passages that are meant to force on us some difficult questions. They're designed to confront each of us with the need for honest self-assessment. To ask us in what ways that our own religious routines and habits and practices, habits that make us feel safe, that make us feel comfortable and secure, how they might have over time instead allowed us to grow a bit smug, a bit entitled. Until we too are going through the motions instead of being vulnerable to God himself. When that happens, a bit of squirming is actually the thoughtful gift of a loving God. And so as I read this passage, there are two moments when that imaginary squirm meter registers at its highest reading. One is, you might have missed it, it's this short, unsettling sentence that God utters in verse 11. I have been watching. Ugh. The other, though, is when Jeremiah gives this obscure instruction about a place called Shiloh. What he's basically saying is to find that tour bus that we seminarians took in 1997 and go and see if you can even find the place. Because if by luck you happen to get there at all, all you're going to find at Shiloh is a neglected, forgotten, abandoned pile of rocks. I can attest to it. I have seen it firsthand. And that is the grim, unsettling, aha moment that God wants his people to have. That moment when it dawns on them that, hey, just a few centuries earlier, that temple in Shiloh was also full of worshipers, also dutifully going about their religious routines, also praying and sacrificing and reciting liturgy, also likely singing that same worship chorus, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Like their descendants there in Jerusalem that Jeremiah is addressing, those earlier worshipers in Shiloh also felt safe. So safe, so comfortable, that they too began to take God for granted. They began to assume that they had a claim on God, that God was on their side. And that's when their comfort decayed into smugness, into presumption. And their actual personal connection to God faded into this routine of religious activities. And, Jeremiah says, if you want to know the end result of all that smugness, go to Shiloh. Take a look around, if you can even find it. That is an image, yes, 
that makes me squirm. It is dark. It is foreboding. It is depressing. Except, except my conviction that the ultimate point of this passage is that God does not want our lives or our faith or our relationship to him to become another Shiloh. He does not want our relationship to him to become another pile of dead stones. If you turn, God pleads through Jeremiah, if you change, if you let me heal you, I will lead you through this crossroads to a totally different future. I will show you life. I will show you blessing. I will show you flourishing. I will show you shalom. That future, that future that God truly desires for every one of us is behind this this, uh, aching, poignant phrase that God utters in verse 14. I called you, but you did not answer. Can you feel the emotion that is in God's heart as he expresses that through Jeremiah? I called you, but you did not answer. What God wants is a vibrant, living relationship with us, not empty religious routines. He wants real connection, not busy activity. As I thought about this passage this week, it occurred to me that this is really what we're, as a congregation, trying to express in our church's mission statement. What really matters What are we trying to accomplish as a congregation? Is it doing churchy things? Is it doing pious things? Is it looking busy at all of our religious activity? No. That is the way to Shiloh. Instead, the only thing that really matters is connecting to a life-giving relationship to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and letting God form us vertically for Him and horizontally for our neighbor. And if a bit of squirming helps us get there, I say, bring it on. Amen. Julie.